Hey, how you doing? Welcome to the Fell Pony Podcast. I'm Tom Lloyd, and it's really lovely to have you here again. I'm really looking forward to today's show. We're going to dig down deep into the history of the breed, its origins, and hopefully hear a few pearls of wisdom from the many stories my guest has gathered over the years for her many books. So I would like to introduce the fountain of information, Sue Millard, author, editor of the Fell Pony Society magazine, webmaster of the Society website, and for the last 15 years has been a member of the Fell Pony Society Council. In 2002, Sue created the online Fell Pony Museum As well as her many non-fiction books, Sue is about to publish her sixth novel and somehow finds time to drive her 26-year-old mare, Copperhill Suzanne. Hello Sue, welcome. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Managing to avoid the Covid, staying at home. (laughs) Good. I'm I'm very pleased to hear that. Let's go right back to the start, Sue. your first introduction to Fells was on a pony trekking holiday in 1968. So something about your pony must have really captured you and made an impression, right? Yes, he was a large brown fell pony. He was uh, he was called Wimpsy because his original breeder said that he was so pretty he looked like one of, one of them Wade Whimsies, and he spelled it with a P for some reason. <laughs> so he's actually in the stud book as Wimpsy. I mean, no no prefix. I think he was bred by Edwin Walker. He was by a stallion called Mary John, who was the son of Master John, which was the last of the travelling stallions. He was a big brown gelding, loads of hair, loads of mane. You had to actually move his forelock to be able to see whether he had eyes or not. He was that hairy. He was a really lovely pony. So today we're going to go back into history. I said on my intro, we're going to go deep into history today. So, But before we do that, for people who don't know, there are nine, well, they used to say there were nine distinct breeds in the United Kingdom, um, but recently they've added the Fen, Eriskay, and I believe the Kerry Bog Pony have been added. In, the, in North Wales, the Carnethai Ponies, which are a, a, a semi-feral Welsh pony, like a, a small Welsh Section A type. That takes us up to 13 then, I think, by yeah, that I, reckoning. I, think I yeah. counted 14 the other day when I was counting up. Yeah. Okay. It's not, the, not the classic nine anymore. No, no, no. But if, if I mention all the others, you will instantly place them. So if I say Welsh Mountain, New Forest, Dartmoor, Exmoor, Highland, Shetland, Connemara and Dales, you instantly place them. Um, but Fell is the kind of little known one, uh, and that's native to the northern fells of Cumbria and Westmoreland. Yes, and bits of Northumbria and bits of Lancashire as well. So what what is a fell pony, and how do we separate it from all the others? What makes it a fell pony? The classic thing is the fact that there are herds that breed out on the open fell. The, the core of the breed, there's about 20-odd breeders, human breeders, not fell ponies, um, who actually live out on the, the edges of the fell land, the, the upland commons. And uh, these core herds live out on the tops for most of the year. They only come down into the valleys to be bred and for the foals to be born and for the foals to be taken off in the autumn. They're a biggish sort of pony, uh, capable of carrying an adult. Um, they were bred originally to carry packs of lead, wool, goods of all sorts. They were carrying sort of 16 stone upwards, perhaps 20 stone uh, slung either side of them, walking long distances. So they had to be fairly sturdy. Um, they're not as big as some of the British large ponies. They're not as big as a Highland. 
typically the 13 2 to 14 hands. Black, brown or bay in colour. And grey. Or grey, yes. But no chestnuts. Why is it? Why are we not allowed chestnuts? Simply because the original definers of the breed standard didn't realise that chestnut was recessive and might actually be in the breed. And they just said, well, we've got blacks, we've got greys, we've got browns, we've got bays. We obviously don't have chestnuts at all. But it does lie doggo occasionally, you know, perhaps one in a thousand folds might turn out to be a chestnut because that gene is there in the background. But it's been it's been excluded and um, no amount of argument will, will persuade the council that we really ought to allow chestnuts in. So we, we stick with the four basic colours. And of course, nowadays we do have, um, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the benefit of genetics to help us. Um, whereas go back um, 40, 50 years, people, we didn't have any of that evidence at all. So that's, you know, that's is that why we've now got more breeds than we did have before? I think that's why more breeds are recognised that DNA analysis has, has pointed out the fact that some parts of the, the, the pony population of the UK are actually distinct from others and have been so for quite a long time, you know, more than just 40, 30 or 40 years. We're talking hundreds of years of separation. So, so what, are the, what are the origins of the fell pony that we know today, Sue? Well, to go right back to the beginning, um, there were actually horses and ponies within the British Isles before the last Ice Age. Um, I lurk on an archaeology forum which is known as Zoark and I just watch the, the, the comments coming up and, and read what's being said and occasionally this question will come up, you know, how long have we had horses in the British Isles and there are archaeological remains from before the last ice age but after the last, last ice age when all the ponies and the large fauna had been driven southward by the ice into what's now the continent um, as the ice retreated I dare say that the, uh, the grass and the plants and so forth began to grow again as as temperatures rose and the, the herds would just follow the grass back into the, the northern areas so in prehistory we probably had a dispersed population of ponies and there would be horses of pony size we, we, we would call them ponies these days they wouldn't be very big and then gradually those have been dispersed across the country and confined to smaller areas by the expansion of the human population. When are we talking in time then? Well that's that's about 7,000 years BC. Um, we're not sure, after the English Channel formed around 7,000 years BC, we're not sure whether it was human intervention that brought ponies over or whether they came over of their own accord. I think it was probably a mixture of both. People would have realised they were useful for carrying things and dragging things about. You know, They were reasonably docile and you could get on with them alright. So this this is what we'd call then is it the common ancestor of the native breeds. Yes, I would say so. Um, so we we know that there were ponies in the British Isles before the Romans arrived and were gradually becoming a separate population from anything that was on the continent simply because of the English Channel being in the way. And so is it that as, as the ponies are spread out in different parts of the British Isles, the environment has shaped a different kind of pony. Is that is that how they've evolved to all have slight differences? Yes, and of course it, there's also been the, the human influence of, of if they had chance to choose which animals they bred from, they bred from the ones that were most suited to the jobs they wanted to do in their local area. I can't tell you when the fell ponies separated off, but what I can say is that we know we had ponies in this area for a long, long time before anything was actually called a fell pony. You can go back to the end of the 16th century and you've got references to these things called Galloways, which were a small bay 
pony that lived in the southwest of Scotland, and they were known for extreme stamina. They could go forever. They were fast and enduring and quick-minded and active little things. And um, they were very well respected. They were, they were used by the, the Border Reavers as their raiding mounts. They were fast and the, the Border Reavers had a reputation for being extremely untrustworthy, but extremely good cavalry. Um, if you could get on top of the, the men's brains, you could rely on them with their horses to do almost any job you wanted them to do. Um, and so this word Galloway is, is really where the origins of the fell pony comes from. It's also the root of the Dales and to a partial extent, the, the Highlands. We've got references to Galloways in Shakespeare, in Henry the Fourth parts, Henry the Sixth part two, I think, or Henry the Fourth part two. I'd have, to, I'd have to check that. It's Henry the Fourth something anyway. And he talks about no, we not Galloway nags. In other words, he knows there are hardy little pests of ponies that lived in the southwest of Scotland and one of his characters compares himself to these hardy and enduring types of horses you know rather than these pampered jades of Asia that can't go half a mile or more without falling over you know I'm, I'm a man with stamina I'm a, I'm a Galloway. Well I, I still know um, two or three um, two or three of the old breeders who would they wouldn't say a fell pony they'd say a fell Galloway still I'd never heard them say fell pony always a fell Galloway. It goes back, as I say, to right back to the end of the 17th, 16th, 17th centuries. Um, lots of references to um, ponies that have been stolen. There's an advert in the Whitehaven Intelligencer of 1777 saying, you know, stolen from Wood End at Egremont, this, uh, this Bay Galloway, 12 hands high, only little, but had been ridden, you know, they had saddle marks on them. There were races for Galloways as well, so there, there was a split between the local breed and the, um, the what was then becoming the racehorse. There are lots of horses in the thoroughbred pedigree which are referred to as Galloways, which I think are probably a cross between an Arabian or Oriental type of horse and the local Galloways. The race meetings defined horses and Galloways separately. They had races for Galloways and they had races for horses. And I assume that the only difference was the pace that they raced at because they carried the same weights, they went the same distances, the prizes were very similar, the conditions of the races were very similar. So I could only assume that the horses, as they called them, were galloping horses like race horses are on the main racetracks today, and that the Galloways were either trotters or pacers at their, their best fast pace. I would assume they were trotters. So p pacing is where the two legs on each side move together, isn't it? Like a camel, yeah, or a camel or a giraffe. I can't tell you when the fell ponies separated off, but what I can say is that we know we had ponies in this area for a long, long time before anything was actually called a fell pony. Now, how do we know what the, ori the origins of the fell pony look like? The answer is we don't. Um, the, the, the only drawing I know of, of anything that was like a fell pony is a tiny little print by Thomas Allen, which is in the library at Kendlow, was an Alas saw it, of uh, a trotting race taking place on the top of High Street. And the, the, the picture is only about four by six inches. It's really small. And the images of the ponies <laughs> incredibly tiny they're about as big as a match head so you can't see what kind of an animal they were actually riding um the earliest i've got of any 
fell pony types of ponies are of Strawberry Girl in the 1860s. Um, and she didn't look like a fell pony at all. She was grey. She was clean legged. She was quite light. She looked almost like a, a, a really sturdy Welsh Section A. No, I'd got no real ancient photographs or drawings of, of fell ponies as such. So a lot of what we're talking about is speculation um, photographs that were taken in the late 1890s. That's the sort of the earliest that we would be likely to uh, to get. And, and half of those were, were either Dales or they were not described as anything in particular. Interesting, you mentioned the uh, trotting race. Is that the Shepherd's Meet up on High Street? Yeah, yeah. So tell, tell us about that. So um, High Street, for anybody that doesn't know, High Street is the highest mountain in the Eastern Lake District. It's over 2,000 feet. That's right, and it's called Street because it contains a straight Roman road. A lot of the Roman roads are referred to as streets. Um, and it doesn't mean they're high streets in the middle of the town, it means they're up on the tops of the fells. And this area along the top of High Street in the Lake District was known as Racecourse Hill. And uh, it's also the dividing watershed between two very large catchment areas of, of water and, and rivers and so forth. So the farmers from each side would find that they got sheep coming off the fell into their farms and they belonged on the other side of the hill. So in order to return them, they would have a shepherd's meet up on the top at the boundary line and exchange these sheep that had come astray. And being farmers, and it was a day out and they were all meeting together, they'd drag a keg of beer up there and they'd have some races and they'd have a bit of wrestling and, you know, such like country pursuits, as Mr. Clark describes in one of his books. And um, they had trotting races up on the top on Racecourse Hill, and that's why it's called that, because it was a straight stretch of Roman road and you could get good footing and it was a, a fair distance for people to, to ride their ponies. That's really interesting. Um, oh, it's clunk. So a fell in the Lake District, fell means a hill or a mountain with a little f. And the, and the fell pony, fell with a capital F, is a recognised breed. But a fell pony with a little f is just a kind of pony that would run out and live out on the hills all year round. So I suppose it's, you know, when do we move from being ponies that run out of fell to being the fell pony as a certain breed, you know, with rules and regulations of what it can and can't be? That happened gradually. Um, the first reference I've got to fell pony with a little f, as you were saying, is about 1853 in the Westmont Gazette, where it said that there had been a sale at Dent, um, a horse sale, a horse fair, and uh, fell ponies with a small f had been making good prices a bit better than they had done in previous years so obviously this term had been in use for some time and this is just the first record that we've got of it in print so 1853 and then gradually it crops up in newspaper references over the next sort of 20-30 years we get to the end of the 19th century and um, the riding and polo pony society decided to set up a stud book this is mainly to cater for people who wanted to breed polo ponies to accommodate the fact that the Indian regiments were coming back from India with this passion to play polo. But they couldn't do it on thoroughbred horses because they were just too tall. So they wanted something that was going to be a thoroughbred crossed with a native pony. And so the Riding and Polo Pony Society wanted a record of where these native ponies were being bred and where you could find them. And then you could breed from them to produce polo ponies. And that's where the various areas were kind of defined, you know, Dales being in the Dales and Fells being in the, the Cumbrian area and Exmoors and Dartmoors and all the other places. The geographical names come from that period, from the end of the 19th century. And that's also where the height limit of 14.2 
comes up, the 14-2 hands, so they didn't want things that were going to be too tall that people couldn't actually play polo from. So that was, they were registering ponies in uh, the Westmoreland and Cumbrian and um, the Northumbrian area uh, as fells from about uh, 1896. And then gradually that was used as a term for the breed, for the type of pony that you found in the Lake District and on the edges of the uh, the Pennines. So the ponies were were integral to the agricultural industry that was going on at the time and for transport. We talked about pack saddles and moving stuff about. And they would have been sold, bought and sold at fairs. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yes, the, a, a lot of um, dealers would, would pick them up from the farms and take them to the fairs to sell and, and turn them over at twice the price they paid on the farm, you know, get far more out of it than the farmer would do, as is always the way. And I think I've seen a picture somewhere, I can't remember where, of, of Bruff Fair going back a long time. You know, go back 100 years and they looked a little bit different to what we've got now. Yes, I think they've they varied quite a bit. The breed wasn't as um, consistent, I think, as it is these days. I think almost certainly what you would look at as a fell these days is more consistent in appearance than perhaps you would have said back in the 1890s, 1900s. You had some that was quite small, sort of 12 hands. You had some that were relatively large. You know, if you, you bought them as youngsters off the fell and took them down onto the good land down at Wigton, they would grow up to be quite large. The amount of hair has always varied as well. Some some have had a lot of hair and some have had um, a small amount of hair at the backs of the legs, which then they cast in the summertime, so they're almost clean-legged in the summer. Uh, that, I think, is less common these days than it used to be. I think people have carefully bred to have a lot more hair than they might have had in the older days. Living where you are, which is pretty much in what I call the heart of Felpony HQ Central, um, you're sort of on the edge of the Howgills there, aren't you? You've, um, there's, you'll kind of be surrounded within 20 or 30 miles. There'll be a lot of the big, big fell pony breeders around yeah, you. Yeah, we, we're surrounded by the by the, the big fell commons, the Howgills, um, Roundthwaite, Birkbeck, Crosby Ravensworth fell used to carry ponies, but doesn't anymore. It's a landscape that you know know well, and and I know it's a landscape that shapes a certain kind of person. When you did your book, Hoofprints in Eden, I get the sense that there was a real capturing a moment in time. That must have been really interesting, you, um, you know, chatting to some of the breeders with some of the old, oldest bloodlines whose families have bred ponies for generations. Yes, and I ended up having to categorise them in the book and, and, and list them in the order in which they said they had first started having fell ponies. And we found that the oldest family was the Darg family, uh, who started having fell ponies that we know of in 1820. And they probably had them before then. There was one of the family got married and his, his bride's dowry was 20 grey Galloways. And they always call fell ponies Galloways. They continue to breed them and they, I think they still are doing. There's still some of the Peepings line available. And uh, they still call them Galloways. They don't call them fells. I was I was lucky enough to meet Joss Darg once actually. I played dominoes with him at a fell pony breeders um, uh, pie and pea supper, and he didn't give much away. But I was slightly in awe of him. And um, this is in the early nineties, and in the early early nineties, mid nineties, there weren't that very many grey ponies around. I only I had only like seen one, I think, and knew of a couple. But the the peepings they were known for being grey and also as trotting ponies. Is that right? Yes, the, the original ponies that they had were grey and they were very fast trotters. There was there was one of their line called Strawberry Girl who in the 1860s 
won quite a lot of money at various uh, trotting races, uh, Liverpool, Lancashire, Blackpool, you know, sort of £60 for a, a win, which was a hell of a lot of money in those days. And Joss, Joss apparently had always wanted to breed a grey, but all his stock were black and didn't carry the grey gene anymore. So he never did get himself a, a, a grey pony. You ready? This is the bit we've been waiting for. Each week I ask our guests to call the herd home. So I'm going to go first and I'm going to call my herd. And then I'd like you to just take a step back from the microphone and call your pony. Call Cuppy Hill Suzanne as if you were calling her. Okay. Come on! Come on! Ho! Over to you. Come on! Ruby! Ruby! If you like what you're hearing, why not come and join the herd at Patreon and help us continue to provide great content for free? As well as podcasts, we've already uploaded over an hour of Fell Pony films to our Fell Pony Adventures YouTube channel. So come and join the herd at patreon.com slash fellpony. Your first fell was a Sledale, is that right? She was Sledale on both sides. She was actually registered as Swindale, which is the next valley over. I've been looking at some beautiful pictures of Copy Hill Susanna. I looked at her and I thought, that's that's a Sledale. And of course she is a Sledale. She is, yeah. Um, we we had Sledale Bertie for a while uh, in the eighties, and I I remember actually seeing Sledale Bertie when he was an old old stallion. Uh, Mike Allen had him actually, and the, and the pony was almost blind actually, but he was still a real formidable beast, even at an old age, hardly able to see. In your I think again in your book there's a thing Mrs Newell saying Sledale were the only ones to be consistently a true pony which I thought was quite an interesting comment, actually. I have to say, I've always had a, a penchant for, for Sleddles because the, the, the second fell pony I ever rode was the one who led the treks at Troutbeck Hotel in the 1970s, and he was Sleddle Angus. He was by uh, Glendra Mackin, and he was a big mahogany bay, and he was absolutely gorgeous. I mean, a lot of people looked at him and said, oh, damn great thing, he's, he's a Dales, you know, but he's not, he was, he was a fell. And so I've, I've always hankered after the brown ones. And Sledale, um, for anybody that doesn't know, Sledale is south of Horswater, um, up Mosedale, up there, there's a common, and actually I was up at Mosedale on one of my treks and got chatting to um, one of the guys that uh, helps out with Mosedale Cottage there. And he told me that there'd, um, there's an, an enclosure up on the top there that they call the pony enclosure. It's where there's a slate mine and they bring slate down all the way down, um, uh, hang on, where are we going down? Mosedale, Swindale, up to Shat. And there was a, up to 100 ponies at any time in that enclosure, which I found that amazing. Uh, and that's right next door to Sledale. I presume there'd be quite a few of the Sledale ponies would have been used in that business, go back 100 years. I would have thought so. That's an aspect of the breeding that I didn't actually know about and realise there was a horse enclosure all that way up there. I know that backs on to the Ascom Fells where there still are several large herds running freely. And uh, of course, that's where the Heltondale herd came from, Sarge Noble's ponies. At one time, you could ask Sarge how many ponies he had. Nail us, I don't know. I've no idea how many ponies I've got. 70? 80? I don't know. I've never had them all in at one time. You know, because when you go to gather the fell, when it's as big as Heltondale fell, and going out onto the tops onto High Street and all the way down to Kentmere, it would take you a, a full day just to travel around it on a quad bike. You know, so you couldn't possibly guarantee to gather the fell clean when you were bringing ponies in for weaning foals or bringing the mares into the stallion. In fact, 
that particular fell was one of the last that still allowed stallions to run on it. All the others, the stallions have to be kept in by. Um, but on Heltondale and, and the, the dry barracks areas of the fell, they did actually turn stallions out on there. So you, you couldn't absolutely guarantee what stallion had served your mares because there were two or three herds wandering around and, you know, stallions used to pinch mares from other herds and bring them in. And then when, when the humans went and fetched them, you, you might have a foal that was actually by your neighbour's stallion and not by yours. You go back far enough, you could have a foal out of a fell mare by a dale stallion or out of a dale's mare by a fell stallion and register it as a fell or a dale or both. You're not allowed to do that anymore, but it, what it meant was actually those, there were dale's ponies being brought in and Sarge was being bigger, Sarge wanted a bigger kind of pony, didn't he? Because he was looking for ponies that would carry, uh, you know, a riding type and he he was using dale's ponies way back i think it's quite common in quite a lot of the old breeds that, that you find if you go back far enough that you've got dale's blood i mean if you go back far enough through my mare's pedigree she she works out at about 50 percent dale's background and 50 percent fell background but when you go back through the actual books you you don't find a dale's until you go back to about you know three or four generations before we closed the stud book, which was about the 1970s. I was looking at a picture in Clive Richardson's book of Mountain Ranger, um, which has actually got Exmoor in it. You know, there was so... Officially, yes. There was, the, there was a, a felt... Uh, in in the, the stud books, there is an Exmoor register. There's also a half-bred Arab, which was grey, and it was called Telegraph. Um, and this is due to the fact that the Riding and Polo Pony Society was not registering breeds. It was registering the ponies in that area. So the stallion that was a small half-bred Arab, which I think was half, I think the other half was the Exmoor that you're talking about, that uh, Telegraph was this half-bred Exmoor cross Arab. <laughs> and it was under 14 too, so they registered it as being a pony that was available in this area. But I guess also, if you go back then, you know, like any breeder, actually any breeder just wants to improve the stock they've got. And if you're going to go back 100 years before the um, you know, formation of the societies, a breeder might see a pony that's been brought into the area for whatever reason and think, actually, that's going to improve my, that's going to improve my stock. I'm going to use it. So there'd be all the best intent. It's all about just improving the stock. It is, yeah. Um, that classic example is um, Trotting Comet, who was brought up from Shropshire, who was, uh, he was originally part of the Welsh stud book. He was a Welsh cob, but he was also in the Hackney uh, early books, in the early stud books for the, the Hackneys. And he was being crossed onto the Fell and Dales type mares to produce good carriage horses, you know, trap ponies that could go a good rate and were had lots of stamina and endurance. And uh, I always cite him as an example of why the Fell Pony Society went so far down the road of conserving the breed that they've got up on the fells. It's the same principle as the, um, the sheep breeders associations keeping the rough fells and the swaledales purebred on the hill uh, so that they've got that hardy stock to cross onto with the, the bigger and flightier and more exciting types of animals that are either more prolific or a, a faster um, if you haven't got the nucleus of hillbred stock with the stamina and the hardiness in the background, 
then you end up with just a mishmash of hybrids that you can't predict what the outcome is going to be like when you breed them. And so the Felpony Society, the, the old Felpony Committee, before the society was formed in 1922, their aim was to preserve the old breed of pony that has roamed the fells for centuries. And it was the challenge of the crossbreeding of the big animals like the Welsh cob and the fast little animals like the hackney, which were being bred by Kit Wilson down at Rigmaiden at Kirby Lonsdale. He was selling those at a tremendous speed and tremendous prices for work in, in, in traps in, in, the, in the cities. And so there had to be some kind of defence of the basic stock because otherwise you were going to crossbreed the whole thing out of existence, which is what happened to the Galloways. They were crossbred out of existence by crossing for, uh, for height and power for, for ploughing. Um, and they turned into the Clydesdale and the, the remnants of their breed are, are still only available through the native breeds, so the, the Fell and the Dales and the Highland. That was part of the impetus for retaining the, the breed out on the fell. People saw how popular the crosses were and they realised if they didn't preserve the original breed and keep it out on the fell where it belonged and make sure that it was bred pure, that we didn't put every mare to something of a different breed. Um, if they didn't do that, they were going to lose them completely. Interesting that 100 years later, it's still as vitally important that we have a seed bank of hardy ponies that can survive out on the fell. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't have the ponies out on the fell, then the breed type starts to slip towards a larger and slightly coarser animal, I think. Um, it's a thing called epigenetics. It affects the way the genetics of the pony are actually expressed, so what it looks like and how it behaves and how it survives. They, they change, obviously, in response to the environment. So if you keep breeding ponies down on the lowland, they lose the use of the genes that keep them hardy and give them the endurance that they have if they live out on the fell. So every breeder on low land tends to come back to the hybrid fell pony breeds, to the hybrid fell pony herds, and buy stock that have that inherent hardiness triggered by the fact that they live on the tops of the fells, up on the Howgills and up on the tops of High Street and so forth. Um, and they, they bring back in that, that hardiness and the way that the genes behave express themselves as hardiness, which is quite complicated. It's a complicated concept to understand, but it's something that the fell breeders have understood instinctively because they have observed it happening when you take stock off the hill and you breed them on lowland. They do become a bit bigger and a bit softer and a bit less hardy. Very nice ponies and very useful still, but not the hardy breed that you meet out on the fell. And so they've, they've always been coming back every sort of two, three, four generations. They will come back and they will have an injection of the older hardy stock that have lived out on the fell and have that influence in their background. Unfortunately, that's getting harder all the time, isn't it? Because not every year, but over the last few years, we, we are losing more of the hill herds for you know various various reasons. So what what is the future for the hill herds? There's not a huge financial incentive to set up a hill herd of fell ponies? It's very, very difficult. I mean, there are not only no, no financial incentives, there are active difficulties in the way because in order to have rights to graze a pony on the fell, you have to own a property that has rights on the fell. Uh, I wrote a whole long article about this for the Fell Pony Society. It was in their magazine in uh, autumn 2019 and it's available on their website. Um, all about how the rights existed from well before the Norman Conquest. And 
in more recent times, since about 2006, the law has decreed that you cannot sell a right on the fell without the property. You have to have a property to which the right is actually linked. And so there never were an awful lot of hill herds anyway. Um, luckily, we've got one or two that have restarted. We've got people who are either leasing rights on the fell or have bought farms that have got a right that haven't been used very much. And they've, they've started up a new herd because they've actually bought a farm with rights. So the numbers have actually gone up of, of hill breeders officially, you know, recognised as being running ponies on the tops of the fells on a shared common. But it's always a bit dicey because there, there literally are only 20 odd herds. It's very difficult to know how you can possibly support um, starting up new breeds because unless the rights are there and unless you can get access to the rights by either buying property or leasing from somebody who's got the rights, it's very difficult to start up a hill herd on the top. You'd, you'd really have to go for buying an allotment, which was enclosed land from when the Enclosures Act came in. It was a bit of the fell that was taken in and it's high and it's rough and it's big and it's extensive. I mentioned earlier genetics is one of the tools we've got now that we didn't have before. And I think you said right at the start of the show that the the fell has a close link with the Highland as well as the uh, Galloa. Can you tell us about that, how that research is done and how we know they're closely linked? The, the, actually, the most recent genetics I saw, and I can't remember the name of the lady who wrote the paper, but she was she was in a big group who were working on genetics of, of ponies. Um, it actually showed that the Highland was quite a long way distant from the fell. The fell was most closely associated, get this, with the Shire and the Clydesdale. And presumably it's through the Galloway that it's related to the Clydesdale. Um, the Fell and the Dales are obviously sister breeds. And then shortly after that, you get the Shire and the Clydesdale and then a little bit of with the Hackney. And after that, it's quite a long distance to anything else, apparently. They always said that the Fell was closest to the, the Highland and the Dales. And we know, of course, about the Dales because the two stud books were so closely linked for quite a long period. But there certainly were highlands used in the fell breed. There was one called Highland Laddie, I think it was a highland. And fells were used, I'm sure they must have been, you know, crossing the Solway for generations. I mean, after all, the, the Galloway must have done them. They must have been brought in by traders. Um, I know mentioning Frisians is uh, a little bit uh, contentious nowadays with the fell pony. But I, I do like to think that when the Roman cavalry came over from wherever it was, the Black Forest, some of the local chaps would have like tried to steal some of the best stallions off the uh, Roman cavalry and would have been turned out. But who knows? It, it's... Well, this is this is pure speculation, isn't it? I mean, the, the trouble is, the Romans were beggars for sending their troops hundreds of thousands of miles. <laughs> they were troops from Pannonia and Hungary and Tungary and all sorts. I mean, they sent them deliberately as far from their own homeland as they possibly could. So it's not just the Frisian. They may have been horses from Hungary and Carpathia and all sorts of places. If, if that's a, the possibility, you know, that, that people said, oh, I'll slip you a fibre and we'll have it. Your, your stallion can serve my mare, you know. Um, the, it, and it'll have been so long ago that it won't have been it's not something you can probably keep tabs on these days genetically because there was such a mix of ponies and horses in those days and they didn't call them any particular breed they were just you know horses that came with the cavalry so it wasn't just the Frisians it was it was everybody you know it wasn't just Frisia it was Germany and France everybody's looking for the best stallion to put with the mares doesn't yeah, matter how yeah. far back we go 
Okay, Sue, we're winding up to the last five minutes of the show now. So I've got the quick questions for you. Three quick questions, one word answers. So the first question, ride or drive? Drive. Um, second question, favourite pony or line in the history of the breed? Uh, Sleddles, definitely Sleddles. Go on, have you got one? I love a brown pony. My, my mare that I've got at the moment, she's just lovely. She's not show quality. I can see all her faults, but she's just such a nice person to have around. That's good. Temperament's way at the top of my list. That's oh, all good. absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, third question. Black, brown, bay or grey? Dark bay. Dark Halfway bay. between brown and bay. Good answer. Before you go, Sue, you have a new book. Uh, your sixth, I believe, sixth novel. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. It's a coming-of-age novel set in the 1970s. And the, uh, the blurb runs thus. Claire Armstrong's mum and dad run a country pub in the Lake District with pony trekking as part of its attractions. Claire's love of the ponies teaches her a great deal about herself, but it's the humans in the pub who cause her the most heartache. That sounds great, Sue. And where can we buy it from? If you go to my website, which is Jackdaw eBooks, there'll be links on there for it to be bought either through bookshops or on Amazon. Well, uh, keep up the good work, Sue. Um, it's amazing how many people know so little about the fell pony, so uh, onwards and upwards. Yeah, it, it, it's quite odd. I, I do talks about fell ponies quite frequently. And it's surprising how even people who've lived in the area for quite a long time are still unaware that we have a pony that is native to Cumbria and to the north of England. It's quite surprising how the word just hasn't been getting out as much as it ought to be you know we we need to tell people that it's there and respect it for what it is i'd just like to thank you very very much sue it's been a really interesting chatting to you i've learned more again every, every time i meet you i get another little pearl of wisdom so it's been really really interesting too thank you so much for coming and joining us thank you very much man I've, I've learned things as well today so you said odd things that i have not come across before so i'm gonna go seeking what what truth is behind those when i'm finished here listening back to that conversation i realize more and more that this is a show not just about ponies but also about people because it's the people that keep the breed going. And for every name of a famous pony, I'll give you the name of a person who has left their mark on the breed. People and ponies will forever so be entwined. Thank you so much for joining me and listening to the show. If you liked it, please do me a favour and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you really liked it, do me an even bigger favour and leave a review. It will really help us get the word out. huge thanks to my patrons who make all this possible. I am eternally grateful for your support. So why not come and join the Patreon herd and help us keep this podcast alive? Find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and you'll be able to find more episodes wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. I'm Tom Lloyd and you're listening to the Fell Pony Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>